with Mr. Reisner. The rest of you, let's open up our Bibles as we finish up chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew. So we are at 5, verses 43 to 48. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, uh, please pick one up over at the resource table so you can follow along with us as we uh, explore God's Word together. So that's Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now and we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. We pray, Father, for conviction where there is a lack of love uh, on our part towards our enemies. Uh, We pray that you would encourage us as we consider the love that you have for us as our Father and and ultimately how that should result in us loving others. We just ask that you would bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a couple questions. What do you love? Who do you love? And then then let's kind of swing it over to the other category. What do you, and I know we hate using this word. I I just used it. What do you hate? Who do you hate? I think in this world, if we're being candid, we have a love-hate relationship. In the love side, there's a whole bunch of things that we love. And in the hate side, there's probably a lot more things than we would really want to acknowledge. So think about it. What's your favorite food? Favorite food? Burritos, all right. Favorite destinations? Miami. (laughs) So locations. Favorite hobbies? I mean, we have a lot, right? I I drove, I'm driving here. People were, activities, doing CrossFit. People I know who do CrossFit, they love CrossFit. Like it is, it is a passion of, of theirs. Uh, possessions. There might be certain things in your house. I mean, I just, I love this. I love this outfit. We have a lot of things that we love. And then we transition from these things and these objects and these activities, and then there's people. Like, I'm, a, I'm hoping you love your spouse, hoping you love your kids, family members, friends. Like, you kind of, and then there's people you love that you don't even know, right? You, you, there's, you, you love your favorite athlete. Where's Dallas? Loves Joe Burrow. He doesn't know you, Dallas. He doesn't, and you love him. Like, we love things like that. We love actresses, musicians, all these different things. But then there's so many things that we hate, right? I mean, there's foods that you hate. Children growing up, there's certain, like, vegetables, I remember. The thing I remember when when Abby and I started dating, the thing that her family loves to make food with is vinegar. And I've grown to actually like it. We are 23 years in kind of like some of the stuff, like cucumbers and onions. It's, when I first tried it, I was gagging. I was like, this is the worst. Like, why are you eating vinegar? There's other things. I, I noticed this week, I hate traffic. Can I get an amen? 
Oh, my goodness. Like, I literally, I, I had to drive so much this week, and every time I drove, it was just traffic, and, and I just had to keep taking a deep breath. Uh, yeah, there's things that we hate. But not just that, we, unfortunately, we start transitioning, and there's people in your lives that have wronged you, and you start thinking about them, and, and maybe you're not willing to say, I hate them. I just deeply despise them. I loathe them with a great passion, but you're not willing to say the hate word. But the truth is, there are people. And I think what has happened for us in, in the world that we live is humanity has adopted an attitude that hatred is an inevitable part of living in this world. It's to be expected. We often justify it. The things that we hate, the objects that we hate, the people that we hate, they deserve it. So it's, it's, it's okay. But the follower of Jesus, as we're going to see, has no place for hatred in their heart towards fellow man. Rather than hate, we're called to love and to follow the example of Christ. We're to love the unlovable because that is what Jesus has done for you and I. So as we unpack the passage today, we're going to consider this love-hate relationship that we're talking about. We're going to begin by looking at the acceptable hatred. We're going to look at the acceptable hatred that was going on amongst God's people. That it was okay to hate certain people. If they fell into a certain category, it was justifiable, it was understandable, it was be expected. But then secondly, we're going to see the affectionate heart that Jesus calls them to. To radically love. Rather than hate the person, I want you to love the person. And then we're going to see the abundant hospitality. And it's really the example of God and his common grace and mercy towards all of humanity. And using that as a, as a baseline, you and I are called to love our fellow man. And then we'll wrap up our time as we look at the average habit. Everybody loves the people that love them. The difference is when you and I love the people that don't love us. So let's begin. Let's pick up at verse 43 as we see the acceptable hatred. Now, if you remember where we are in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, like several weeks in a row, we've seen him intensify our faith. They said, hey, as long as I don't kill somebody, it's okay to hate on my brother. And he said, no, you murder them in your heart. It's okay to lust after a woman as long as I don't commit adultery. He's like, nope, you've you're committing adultery in the heart. It's okay to divorce as long as we do it right. Actually, you shouldn't be getting divorced in pretty much every situation. And even the divorce that was allowed was, there was a, a very small window of the, of the okay and even why it was to protect. We saw oaths that they were swearing to, to sometimes keep their words, sometimes not. And then last week, we saw them justifying revenge using God's word. They said, hey, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, it's in the word. Therefore, and even though the, the reality was that was there to protect against personal revenge, they were using it to justify revenge. And now he's, he's going a step further. He's going deeper. He's like, not only do I want you to not revenge the wrongdoer, I want you to love them. I want you to love them. Read with me. He says, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
All right, we're going to break that phrase down into two parts. First of all, you have heard it said you are to love your neighbor. And it's true. They have heard that from God's word. Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God emphasizes love for the neighbor in the Old Testament, specifically with them being sojourners and they're all over the place. I want you to love the people, often the people who are outside of God's covenant family. I want you to love on them. But it doesn't stop in the Old Testament. We've seen it time and again in the New Testament with Jesus, the idea of loving your neighbor. Luke 10, 27 He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And guess what? And love your neighbor as yourself. So imagine if you're one of these people hearing, and I don't think the first century had the wheel of fortune. I don't. But if they had it, and you had a a three-word phrase, and as all the guessing, you got your neighbor at the end, and then you had the O and the E, so you're missing the LV. What are you going to guess in the first century? Love, right? Love your neighbor. We know it. We're supposed to love your neighbor. But then here's the second part. And here's the problem. And here is the progression we're seeing with the Pharisees. Because they've taken God's word and kind of manipulated it through some of the previous passages we've looked at. But this one is not a manipulation. He says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where did they get that? Maybe they just got confused over the years. Maybe it got, you and I, we do this, misused phrases. Who here says, I could care less? Raise your hand. I know I've heard some of you say it. What are you supposed to say? I couldn't care less. When you say I could care less, it's like, no, it's possible for me to care even lesser than I care right now. The other one, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, I say for all intensive purposes. It's actually for all intents and purposes. I usually just say I heard it both ways if somebody corrects me. And they said, you've heard it a wrong way. But no, so maybe, maybe that's what the, the Gentile or, or the, the Pharisees, right? Somehow the, it got missed. No, it didn't. They added this. They added this. This was never, ever, there's nowhere in the Bible where it would teach that you are okay to hate your enemy. This was willful rebellion on a part of the Pharisees and the scribes. And we know this because later on, we see in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 29, one of these, these experts in the law, he's trying to justify himself and he, he speaks about, yeah, we're supposed to love our neighbors ourselves. And then he asks him a question, what? Who is my? And what he's hoping for, what he's longing for is an exception clause. Here is your, your neighbor. But then when we look at the good Samaritan, who ends up being your neighbor? Everyone. So in essence, you're called to love everyone. And they didn't like hearing that. They wanted a very, very restricted neighbor, which is people that they love. People that they like. 
people like them, and then they could be explained away hating on everybody else. And that was the problem. There was so many distinctions, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, a good Jew, a bad Jew. Like they were justifying, I, I don't have to love them because they don't follow the law like I do. They're Gentiles, I don't have to love them. They're poor, I don't have to love them. Let's be, let's be real with each other. Are there people in your life that you don't like? And not only that you don't like, that you explain it away. You justify it. They've done a lot of bad things to me. They've hurt me. They've dishonest. They've done that. Or they, they, they believe things. They do things that are contrary to God. So this is a righteous zeal, Joe of why I despise them? Do they deserve such animosity on your part? Because that's the acceptable hatred that Jesus is combating. Well, let's now look at the affectionate heart. So we've seen that they thought it was okay to love neighbor but hate enemy. So Jesus, once again, turns their world upside down. He ultimately is telling them, you need to repent because you're totally missing the point. Rather than hate your enemies, you need to love them. He goes on. But I say to you, the word of God saying to you, so this is authoritative, this is binding what he's telling them to do. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Can you imagine you're sitting there and you're hearing this and you've thought all along it was okay to hate my enemy and now Jesus is saying, I want you to not hate him, I want you to love him. Instantly, inner, inner defense attorney, right, is stepping in. You want to say, but, 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 and Jesus doesn't give any room for a but. He says, no, I want you to, I want you to love, and it's the idea of putting forth effort by loving, one of the first Christian songs I ever heard was DC Talk. Love is a verb. Anybody? Down with the DC Talk. Down with the DC Talk. Love is a verb. And I remember that because it, it, there's such a fitting nature to it because I think sometimes we talk love. But friends, in, in the context of marriage, and I do marriage counseling, and, and I am married— like, you can talk a good game if it is not built up with actions. The spouse, whether it's the husband or the wife, they don't feel loved. You need to demonstrate it. And what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to demonstrate love towards your enemy. Not just words. Now, it's weird because in the Old Testament specifically, there's not much mention of loving enemies in the Old Testament. There's a lot of discussion of enemies. You look at the Psalms one of the main subject matters in the Psalms, specifically with David, is his enemies and his foes. And what is he constantly asking God to do? To deliver him from his enemies. Psalm 59.1, deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. But what Jesus is saying here is so shocking. It's so countercultural. It's so different. They've never heard a message like this that not only, yeah, I'm going to pray maybe for deliverance from my enemy, but I need to pray for my enemy. I need to, to love on them. Romans 12, 20 says, 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. It's this idea of loving them. It, it is sacrificial. John 15, 13, greater love is none than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's the call for you and I, that we are to love our enemies with action, with, with demonstrations that we're different, that we're the salt of the earth, that we are representatives of God. I, I think the, the, the element that is even more shocking, not just to love our enemy, that we're to pray for them. And I do have a challenge with that. It is much more difficult to hate somebody that you pray for. So seriously, when I asked you earlier, who do you despise? I want you to start praying for that person. And I guarantee you, the more you pray for that person, God will soften your heart towards that person. And prayer is a demonstration of love. But not only is it putting forth effort by loving, he goes on and says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What is Jesus talking about? I think he is providing further evidence through love that you are God's child. He is not saying, please hear me, hear me on this. He is not saying you and I loving our enemies makes us a son of God, okay? It's not a step into earning God's favor. That if I love God's, if I love my enemies, I will become a child of God, I'll get to go to heaven. It's, it's that marker, no. It, what he's saying is it, it, it helps to distinguish us as children of, of God. Uh, we had, was it last year? Everything, everything just blurs in life as a parent. So it could have been a couple years ago. We had a tick the one day. And like instantly panic mode, tick was on a kid. I have them with Lyme disease already. Like, we need to go to the ER. So we ended up going to our urgent care. We had the tick in a bag. And, like, we pulled it out, and the, the nurse practitioner, we went online, and we're comparing the tick to all these different ticks, and there's certain ticks that are more prone to carry Lyme disease and all that stuff. It ended up not being, uh, one, a tick that would normally carry Lyme disease, and there was no uh, noticeable bite, and so he was fine, still has no Lyme disease, praise the Lord. But, like, being able to look at something helps us to identify, right? And what Jesus is saying, this is important for us to grasp, you and I loving our enemies, it identifies us as followers of Christ, because unbelievers do not love their enemies. Do you understand that? There might be a rare exception here and there, but generally speaking, unbelievers do not love their enemies. They do what to their enemies? They hate their enemies. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So what he's saying is that our loving proves that we are God's children, that we are being like Christ. Ephesians 5, 1, be imitators of me as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So we imitate God by doing what? By loving our enemy. Well, one, are you showing love to your enemies? Is it visible? Is it invisible love? Are you praying for them? 
Is your love evidence that you are a believer? Is our love as a congregation demonstrating that we are a, a church filled with people who love Christ? So we've seen the acceptable hatred. Thought it was okay to love neighbor but hate enemy. We saw the affectionate heart there to put forth effort, but they're also to provide evidence that they're God's children. Let's now look at the abundant hospitality. This is really the reason why you and I should be loving because God has set the example. Or he goes on and says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Notice the compassion of God on humanity. Notice, first of all, that it's the emphasis that God is the one doing it. That there's no confusion as far as to who is the gift giver in this particular circumstance. I know most of us probably at some time have experienced an act of kindness by somebody that they did not know who did it. Like a random act of kindness, maybe something was done anonymously. I know over the years as a pastor, there have been people that have stepped in and helped myself, helped my family, and I never ever found out who specifically did it, and I appreciated it. But like in this situation, what Jesus is emphasizing is this is not one of those secret admirer things. This is not done anonymously. What he's saying is it's clear to everybody, God is gracious, merciful, loving, and compassionate to all of humanity. He's celebrating that. John, or Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. So think about that. Today, all the people that are living and breathing, experiencing God's creation today, God is doing that to them. Believers, unbelievers, doesn't matter. There's people that are married they have children, they have jobs, they have food, they get to experience recreation, all of those things. All of humanity, that is not a Christian-only experience. God is blessing. First John 4, 19, it says, we love, why? Because he first loved us. And there's a sense where he loves everybody in the demonstration. Of that. But then as Christians— We've been experiencing a love that's different than even the world. So we even have further evidence, further demonstration of God's love towards us so that we might love other people. Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast of the love, it never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So God's common grace on this world is evident to all. They might not believe it. They might not understand it, but it's, it's reality. That if you don't know Christ and you're here today, God has demonstrated grace because you're here today. You're living, you're breathing, you're thinking, you're walking and talking, all of that stuff. But then notice not only the compassion on humanity, notice the character that he emphasizes of humanity. Who does he rise his son upon? The evil and the who? The good. Who does he send rain upon? The just and the who? The unjust. Who, who's included in all of that? Everybody. He pours out blessing on people regardless of their character. So like even as I was driving today on the highway, and I probably saw 50, 60 cars from my house till I got here, and I was thinking about that. Like I don't have a clue who was beside me, like the kind of person, but I guarantee I drove by people that are probably better people than me. 
And I guarantee I drove by people that, at least morally speaking, I'd probably live a better life than them. So like there's probably all across the map. And yet as I'm driving and I'm looking up at the sun beating down, I was thinking every single person that's driving out here, they're experiencing the warmth of the sun. It doesn't matter. You know what the people are experiencing now, mind you, it's going to be limited. As I was, I was reading the news this week, is Lucy Letby. She is the British nurse that murdered seven babies and attempted to kill six others at the hospital. She was convicted for, I believe, life in prison. The UK does not have the death penalty. So if there's anybody that you would assume would get the death penalty, it would have been her. She doesn't. So, but the truth is, and, and this is so hard for us to grasp and to understand, is God sends his son or his reign upon the earth for even somebody like her. And he raises the son up for even somebody like her, that there is a graciousness and a mercifulness with God, with the evil and the wicked, that they get to be in God's creation, at least for a season. And that's really the problem with Jonah, right? God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to preach a message of repentance. Jonah does not want to go there, not because he's afraid of the Ninevites, He's afraid to go there because if he goes there, God might not judge them. And that bothered Jonah. Because he looked at the Ninevites and he's like, they deserve it. I want wrath and condemnation. I want the fires of hell to rain down upon them. And the last thing I want to do is go and you be God and you be gracious and you be compassionate and you forgive them. But see, God doesn't look at people like that. Listen to what Jonah, God says to Jonah in Jonah 4.11. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and even much cattle? And God looked at Nineveh and said, I, I need to extend at least the opportunity for grace and, and, and for mercy. And that, that is the God do you understand that the God blesses the good and the evil? That even if they don't deserve it, he still does it. Should you and I extend such grace to the world? Should you and I be instruments of, of such mercy like God is when it comes to the just and the unjust? So we, we see the acceptable hatred. They thought it was okay to love the neighbor, hate enemy. We saw the affectionate heart putting forth effort. You need to provide evidence that you're a child of God. The abundant hospitality, they, they showed God shows compassion, but also it, he shows compassion in spite of character. Let's go to verse 46 as we see the average habit. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Okay, first of all, what is not impressive? the love that they were arguing they had. Because you can even hear it. Jesus is telling them you need to love your enemies. Like, hey, I love a lot of people. And Jesus is like, I'm, I'm, I'm not in, impressed because they're loving people that you would expect for them to love. Jesus is totally unimpressed. Came across this this past week on social media. There was a husband, avid golfer. He got his first hole-in-one in golf. Pretty impressive feat. We're not talking about miniature golf. This is real golf where 
He had to hit it pretty far to hit it in the hole-in-one. So he was so proud, he took a picture, he sent it to his wife. He thought his wife would be enamored with his hole-in-one. I mean, because this is a pretty big deal, wife. He sends it to her, and her response was, did you eat the Raymond noodles? (laughs) Our daughter wanted the Raymond noodles. Did you eat the Raymond noodles? No acknowledgement of the hole-in-one at all. None. Just went on to the conversation like, so now like we don't have ramen noodles. Like what am I going to feed her? And like, and he's just like, he even sent a picture of him by the hole in the flag and unimpressed. That's Jesus when you and I love the very people that everybody would expect us to love. It's not impressive. Luke eleven eleven. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. You see, we, we know how to give good gifts. We, we know how to love. And what's really like indicting upon them is the two categories of people he talks about. Tax collectors. They hated the tax collectors. They, took, they were known to take advantage of the people. They were ultimately working for the oppressing nation of the Romans. So, like, to, to say you're no better than a tax collector, it's about as low as you can go. And then the Gentiles, they hated the Gentiles because they're Jews and they're pure and the Gentiles are unclean. And, and he's saying you're just like them because they do the same thing. In other words, whoopity do, you love people who love you. Not that impressive. What is impressive is loving your enemy. That's what he is drawing attention to. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, once again, we need to make a clarification. He is not saying you're perfect. Here's a biblical principle. If you come to a verse like that, do not take it outside of its context and then immediately lump it into like a theology. It's like, okay, we're called to be perfect people. No. You look at the Bible as a whole, and the Bible as a whole is very clear. 1 John 1, 8. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourselves. So there is no perfect out there. What he is saying is, I want you to live a life that is more impressive. I want you to raise the bar. I was coaching like two weeks ago, junior high football, and in the midst of all of it, my, my son, my older son was there, and, and they were doing sprints at the end. He's like, hey, you should run with them. I was like, game on, I'll do it. So I ran. I ran against the eighth grade football team. Who beat the eighth grade football team? This dude. 47. Boom. Did it one time. Second time. Did not win. I was gasping for air. I was bent over. I almost puked. Let's be honest, though. First of all, this is eight-man football. I have 14 kids. They practiced the whole practice. They had pads on. It was soaking wet. I, I mean, I Part of me felt really proud, then part of me is like, this is not that impressive. You know what would be impressive? If I played in the NFL next Sunday. But that would be impressive, right? It would catch you guys off guard. Why is, why is Pastor Joe not here Sunday? Oh, he's playing for the Browns. That would be impressive. Me running against eighth graders, 13, I think, to be honest with you, if I could play junior high football right now, I would be a star. At least against not good teams. Like, I think they would have a difficult time tackling me. Do you understand here's the problem, here's the dilemma that Jesus is saying to us. It's like we're so impressed that we love our wife, 
and we love our, our children and we love our best friends, big deal. You know what's impressive? You, you, lack, you act like me, you, you follow in the footsteps of Christ, and you love people that are unlovable. You love your, your enemy, you love your foe, you love your persecutor. That is what is impressive because it's resembling of me. Romans 8, 29 says, Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And one of the ways that God wants to conform you and I to the image of his son is that we would be a people who love people that nobody else is willing to love. We love, we love people that we don't want to love. We love people that don't deserve your love. That is the goal. That is the bar. Because that's the ridiculous love that you and I experienced in Christ. As unworthy sinners, he loved the unlovable. So when it comes to love, let's ask the question, is our bar to love? Do we accept mediocrity? Are we tolerant of lukewarm Christianity? Or are we striving to be like Christ? That's the challenge. I really want you to be thinking about this. Who is that person in your life who you just do not like and can you start praying for them? And you can start asking God, God, give me a heart. Give me action to love that person, even though, man, I so don't want to love them. Because God looked at you in your most unlovableness. And he sent his son to die in your place. It reminds me of the story of Renee Napier. I'm, my goal is to not cry as I share this story. We'll see. We will see. Renee Napier, on May 11, 2002, she experienced one of the, the, the worst tragedies you can imagine as a mother. Her daughter, Megan, and her friend, Megan's friend, Lisa, were killed by a drunk driver. I can't even imagine getting the phone call or the police showing up at my house, giving me that news that forever I will never see my daughter again. And that is exactly what she experienced. And it was done by a man named Eric Smallridge. He was a drunk driver. He was sentenced to 22 years in prison. And what ended up happening is really, it's nothing short of supernatural, what God did in the heart of Renee. One, she decided, I'm not going to allow this tragedy to be useless. So she began to have a mission for her life that she would travel around the country and do DUI presentations to warn people of the dangers of driving drunk and what can happen in the, the long-term lasting ramifications that can happen. But the other thing, because she was a believer that she did, and this is where it gets emotional, She forgives Eric, like legitimately forgives the man who killed her, her daughter. She not only forgives him, she develops a relationship with him. And she actually travels around the country, and he travels with her now. Even in the beginning part, he would be able to be released from prison. Just He was with cops, and he was in cuffs, and he would share his story. And like part of that, that at, at these presentations, and this is where it's so emotional, she would go up and hug him and forgive him. I mean, that was, it was so remarkable to see that kind of like otherworldly love. I mean, could you imagine that? 
If somebody killed your wife, your husband, your child, how quick are you to be the one to not only love them, but to forgive them and develop a relationship with her? And it's such a powerful story that even Matthew West, the Christian artist, he wrote a song using it, talking about this was the catalyst. Even when the jury and the judge says you've got a right to hold a grudge, it's the whisper in your ear saying, set it free, forgiveness. Show me how to love the unlovable. Show me how to reach the unreachable. Help me to do the impossible. Forgiveness. And that's what Jesus is calling you and I to today in this passage. That's great you love people who love you. I want you to love the people that hate you. I want you to love the people that want you dead. I want you to love the people who persecute you. I want you to love the people that have harmed you because that's what I did with you. C.S. Lewis says to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. That's how and why we can love our enemies. That's why, to be honest with you, Renee Napier, it's an amazing testimony, but you know what is way more powerful than Renee Napier? Jesus Christ. On the cross, he could say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. John 3, 16, what do we say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the world was what? Unlovable, enemies of God, haters of God. And he sent his son. And that's why you and I should respond to our enemies in the ways of Christ. There's no place for hatred. So we need to stop being like the Pharisees where we justify, we explain away our dislike towards people. Well, I don't like the liberals because they're this, or I don't like that. Or, Friends, Jesus loved you when you were unlovable, so we as followers of Christ need to love those who are unlovable. Let's pray. God, we, we come before you now and we acknowledge that this is something that we can't do in our own strength, that this is something beyond us. Lord, our very nature, we are ones that like revenge. We like vengeance. We like to love those who love us, and we like to hate those that hate us and hurt us. But that's not the way of the gospel. That's not the way of Christ. So God, we pray that you would produce repentance in us, that you would change our hearts, that you would enable us to do that which we can't do. I pray even specifically right now, whoever that person is or people in our life that we are finding it the most difficult to love, that God, you would encourage us to begin praying for that person, that you might soften our heart, that if it wasn't for the grace of God, we might be that individual, and that, Lord, you would give us opportunities to love on them, and to care for them as Christ has loved and cared for us. And we pray ultimately that those enemies, if they're not followers of Jesus, that even our demonstration of love might be uh, the means by which you draw them to Christ and that they would come to know his saving love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please?